Open your Bibles or navigate on your device to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17, Exodus 4, 1 through 17. If you're visiting uh, or new to Calvary, we're teaching through the book of Exodus, a verse at a time, a chapter at a time. The topic, God tells Moses he will use his mouth in a mighty way when he confronts Pharaoh. The title of our message, here he comes to save the day, mighty mouth is on his way. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for giving us uh, a light heart. We appreciate the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. I pray for this gathering of believers, Lord, that you've seen before the foundation of the earth, that you would be here to minister to us, Lord, as you've promised. Your spirit would be our teacher, that we would have things revealed to us in this text. Uh, that are new, other things that are old but are wonderful to remember, and that in every way, Lord, it would further us into becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's our goal. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. For the last 10 years, job listing site CareerBuilder has put out a list it calls the most unbelievable excuses for calling in sick. Some of you are going to want to get in on this. Uh, here are a few of them. These are some of the top ones. These are real excuses. An employee said he couldn't come in because his false teeth flew out the window while he was driving down the highway. You know what we always say? Be true to your teeth or they'll be false to you. Another person claimed that someone had glued her windows and doors shut so she couldn't get out of her house. Another said he caught his uniform on fire by putting it in the microwave to dry. Who hasn't done that? Now, this is my favorite because it's actually a personal fear of mine. I got stuck in the blood pressure machine at the grocery store and couldn't get out. So those of you who are just, you know, end of the year, you're looking for some excuses. False teeth one might be a stretch. But anyway... In chapter 3 of Exodus, Moses learned that God had a job for him. It says in verse 9, Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In chapter 4, Moses is going to give a series of excuses why he thinks he is not the man for the job. They're altogether lame excuses. God easily overcomes each of them. Having run out of excuses, Moses finally says, I don't want the job. Send anyone else. That's not going to go over too well. God's going to get angry. But before we get to God's response, these verses give us an opportunity to discover if we are making excuses in refusing to serve the Lord. I'll organize my comments then around two questions. Number one, have you ever excused yourself from serving the Lord? Number two, have you ever refused yourself from serving the Lord? Let's take a look at excuses in verses 1 through 12. It was only recently that I first heard the word voluntold. It means to volunteer someone to do a task, usually not an enjoyable one, without their consent or their knowledge. God was calling Moses to serve him. Moses reacted as if God was volunteering him against his will, as if he was being voluntold to do something. Is that the truth? Well, think back 40 years. Moses had boldly rejected his upbringing in Egypt 
to identify with his Hebrew brothers and sisters. He stepped up as a deliverer. He killed an Egyptian taskmaster who was beating a Hebrew slave. Moses thought everyone would recognize his calling to save them. They didn't. Instead, the Hebrews accused him of murder and the Egyptians sought to kill him, forcing Moses to flee into the desert as a fugitive. The strong desire of Moses' heart was to deliver his people. God wasn't calling Moses to do something against his will. He was giving him the desire of his heart, only now it was 40 years later after Moses had received the proper spiritual preparation. So he may not have been feeling too deliverish at the time, but this was something that had been on his heart. Uh, It was something that was really precious to Moses, and God was going to give him the opportunity to do it. So it wasn't anything forced. It was a desire thing. Now, as we discuss serving the Lord, consider that the thing or the things God might be calling you to do might initially seem contrary to your will. Trust that he knows you better than you know yourself and that he's wanting to give you the desires of your heart. So verse 1 says, Moses answered and said, Suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Moses was still at the burning bush where God was talking to him. We last saw that this was none other than Jesus speaking to him. In verse 18 of chapter 3, Jesus had said, they will heed your voice. Moses suggested they might not. It's always an excuse when we think or we suggest that God's word may not be accurate or applicable in our situation. Verse 2, so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. Now, this is most likely his long shepherd's crook, although we know that shepherds also carried a shorter rod for discipline and defense. We read in the Psalms about the rod and the staff. So we're not really sure which this is, but we uh, think that it's probably the longer crook. Many devotions have been written about Jesus using what is already in your hand. While we are never to trust in our natural talents or abilities, they can be offered to God and he can anoint and use them. The Apostle Paul, for example, he said he considered his life before meeting Jesus no better than a pile of manure. But at the same time, when you follow his journeys in the book of Acts, you see God using what was in Paul's hand dual citizenship as an Israeli and as a Roman, and the command of several languages. And so though Paul didn't trust in these things, he knew that God could use all and everything that he had learned for his glory. Jesus can, and he wants to use what is in your hand. And so don't grasp for something not in your reach. Use what you have. Minister where you are right now and trust the Lord. Verse 3, and he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. In his 40 years as a shepherd, Moses had undoubtedly encountered many snakes. This one was a red-on-yellow kill-a-fellow variety. Commentators suggest it was a cobra, the one that adorned the Egyptian headdresses, but that's mere speculation. That's kind of poetic license. But obviously, Moses, who knew the desert and knew snakes, Uh, was afraid of this snake, so it must have been a serious poisonous snake, which is why verse 4 is so interesting. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Even non-poisonous snakes should never be handled by the tail. It's the head that you need to immobilize. Even if they don't poison you, they could bite you. 
Moses showed a great deal of faith in obeying the Lord. He fled from this poisonous snake, but when the Lord said, grab it by the tail, he did it. Now, in the midst of doubting Jesus and objecting to him, Moses still had faith. One of the things that makes it hard for us to see when we are making excuses is that in most areas of our walk with the Lord, we might be doing his will. We thus tend to overlook any areas where we are prone to make excuses. If I'm going to church, people know I'm a believer, things are generally going well, I may not hear the Lord calling me to further sacrifice or to something new. If you're a creature of habit, like I am, and you get kind of into a flow, it can be difficult for God to break into that and say, hey, I want you to do something new or something more. And so I need to constantly ask the Lord to search my heart, revealing new ways of serving him and invigorating the old ways too. Why a serpent? Maybe to show that Jesus had power to take up the devil and defeat him. After all, the promised Savior in the Garden of Eden, we're told, was going to crush the devil's head, uh, that old serpent that was in the garden. And that's probably why Moses took the serpent by the tail. Crushing the serpent's head wasn't his task. And, And we're only called to our task. Let Jesus do the work of changing hearts. We're just needing to share the gospel. We don't need to worry about the result. Later in the history of Israel, when they are out of Egypt and in the desert, they're going to grumble against God. Poisonous serpents come into their camp, and their bite is fatal. Moses constructs a bronze serpent and puts it on a pole. Any Israelite who gets bit need only look at that pole to be healed. In the New Testament, Jesus compares himself on the cross to that pole. All we need to do is look upon Jesus, who defeated the devil, believe in him, and we're saved from that poisonous bite. And so verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Hebrews had descended from Abraham through his son Isaac and through his son Jacob. More than just a reminder of their heritage, the Lord meant for them to understand there was a bigger historical movement that they were a part of. Remember, these were people who had now are at the end of a 400-year slavery in the nation of Egypt. And so that generation hadn't heard from God through a prophet in some 400 years. And now all of a sudden, there was going to be this huge deliverance. And so God is saying, hey, I haven't forgotten my promises. This is all part of the historical flow. In fact, I told Abraham that his people, his descendants, would be enslaved for 400 years. Uh, This is all part of the program. And that's always an encouragement to know that you're part of something bigger that you're not just some forgotten individual, but that God has built you into the building. You're a stone, a living stone in the building of the church. You're a life-giving member of the body of Christ. Uh, And so that's what he's telling his people, Israel, at the time. And then in verse 6, furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. He put his hand in his bosom inside of his clothing, kind of like Napoleon-ish like this. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Now, this term for leprous describes a bunch of skin maladies from slight to serious. This was evidently a very serious case. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again, and he drew it out. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Maybe it's just me, but I wonder how much time elapsed. There must have been some anxious waiting on Moses' part, thinking, is this going to spread? Can I put a little cream on this? What's, what's the deal? 
The idea here is that you can't reach into yourself. You'll only find sin represented by rotting flesh. God can nevertheless heal and use your hand to serve him. Verse 8, then it will be if they don't believe you or heed the message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign. So God, Jesus had told them in the previous chapter, they're going to hear you and believe you, but I'm going to give you a couple of signs for you uh, so that you can feel comfortable. Two signs would be better than one. So how about a third, verse 9, and it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you'll take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. This reminds us that the Nile had claimed the lives of untold Hebrew babies who had been drowned in it by the decree of the previous Pharaoh. That blood cried out to God. Moses was promised three powerful signs that would confirm that he was speaking on behalf of God. God thereby easily overcame Moses' objection. Are we ever hesitant to share the gospel because we don't think people will listen to us or believe us? I would say that most Christians, it's, it's a fear that they have sharing the gospel. A lot of people are hesitant to share, especially with a stranger, but even to a friend or a relative. We think it would be great if signs and wonders could accompany our sharing. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, maybe they do. Because when we share our testimony of being saved, we're actually proclaiming that Jesus has defeated the devil and given us victory over sin. I'm not sure exactly how we share Christ or how you do it or go about the gospel, but when you start talking on behalf of Jesus, representing him, you're saying that the devil is a defeated foe and that you can have victory over the sin in your life. Uh, And you're offering that and the forgiveness of sins to others. And so there's kind of a, a miracle going on. You're a walking miracle, a miracle of new birth. Moses was not through offering excuses, however. In fact, he was just warming up, verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, we have an important decision to make. We need to decide if Moses had a speech impediment, such as stuttering. If this statement were all that we had to go on, we might come to that conclusion. Thankfully, we do have more to go on. It comes from the speech of Stephen, the first martyr of the church age, in the book of Acts. While he's reviewing the history of Israel to his Jewish accusers, Stephen had a lot to say about Moses. Concerning his speech specifically, Stephen says this, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words. It's the inspired testimony of the Holy Spirit through Stephen that growing up Egyptian, Moses was mighty in words. Add to that, Moses himself, 40 years earlier, and I quote, supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. And so Moses stepped up when he was 40 years old. He said, I'm your deliverer, and he was a guy mighty in words, and so no disability is ascribed to him, not stuttering, not anything, So what might Moses mean now as an excuse? What was the real problem? My father was a first-generation Italian immigrant through Ellis Island. He came to the United States when he was 16 years old. He spoke only the language of heaven. (laughs) He had to teach himself English, which is a close second. Growing up, I remember my dad calling our Italian relatives uh, every year on Christmas Eve back east. 
My grandma never learned English, so my dad had to talk to her in Italian. Every year, it became more and more difficult for him. His speech was hesitant. It was a curious mix of Italian and English with a lot of saying, how you say, refrigerator. And then somebody on the other end would tell him how to say refrigerator in Italian, and they would halt along in their conversation because all those years speaking only English had taken its toll on his native tongue. Moses was 40 years removed from speaking Egyptian or Hebrew. The most natural explanation was that he was objecting that he no longer had the eloquence to address either Pharaoh or his own people. Slow of speech and slow of tongue makes more sense as a lost skill than as a physical disability suddenly appearing when he was 80 years old. And so verse 11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now right away your mind is blown and you're forgetting the context of this. So let me say this, read this verse in context. Because if you read this as a standalone verse, out of context, it seems to teach that God makes certain people mute or deaf or blind for his glory. Indeed, a lot of commentators read it that way, and then they glibly explain God is sovereign, does whatever he wants. I've used this illustration before, but it's a good one to remember. In the famous Frost-Nixon interviews, David Frost asked President Nixon if it was ever all right for the president to do something illegal. Richard Nixon responded by saying, if the president does it, it's not illegal. Amazing. A guy like that's not going to be president very long, right? I mean, <laughs> commentators who appeal to the sovereignty of God to explain difficult statements are basically saying, if God does it, it's not evil. And so we read a verse like this and we think, that's evil. And they say, yeah, but God is sovereign. And when he does it, it's glorious. We would reject that as an explanation. So what do we make of verse 11? Well, first of all, even if we do look at it all by itself, it isn't saying anything about creating people with disabilities. The words made or make have nothing to do with forming human beings in the womb. That's something we are reading into the verse that it doesn't say. Moses was objecting that his words were not eloquent enough to accomplish the task. He was afraid Pharaoh would hear him but not be persuaded by him. We might use the expression, his words would fall on deaf ears. Now, we don't mean that the person is actually deaf. We mean that the person is not going to understand. They would indeed fall on deaf ears, but in that spiritual sense, Pharaoh would be mute and deaf and blind to God's words and ways. What this verse is pointing to are spiritual disabilities, not physical disabilities. It's not unusual for God to describe physically healthy people as having spiritual, sensory disabilities. When God first commissioned Isaiah, he told him this, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but you won't understand, keep on seeing, but you won't perceive, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Prophet Jeremiah was told by God, hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding. You have eyes, but see not. You have ears, but hear not. In the New Testament, we're told, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, speaking of a spiritual blindness. And then finally, the people attending the church in Laodicea 
are described as blind in Jesus' letter uh, that's recorded in the book of the Revelation. Many, many passages where people are described as spiritually deaf and dumb and blind. Look carefully again at verse 11. It says, he makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind. In a list of disabilities, why mention making some people who see? It only makes sense if we're talking about spiritual sight and spiritual healing, hearing. rather. So God is sending Moses with his words, knowing Pharaoh would be deaf to them and blind to their truth. As far as the physical disabilities from the womb or otherwise, I like what theologian Greg Boyd says. He says, God created a world in which blindness is occasionally the result of natural processes such as disease and genetic defect or accident, occasionally due to violent, sinful acts by people. Another commentator shared this insight. We should acknowledge that we are all disabled or handicapped. The need for eyeglasses indicates impaired or handicapped vision. Dental braces are a sign of imperfect teeth. The whole human race lives with the reality of imperfection. We are all broken in some way. The handicaps we live with are simply a matter of degree. When babies are delivered in the hospital, they're issued an APGAR score. That scale is determined by evaluating the newborn on five simple criteria on a scale of zero to two. Then you sum up the five values thus obtained. The resulting APGAR score ranges from zero to 10. The five criteria are appearance, pulse, grimace, activity, and respiration. The fact we score newborns is a reminder we live in a fallen world. We don't expect there to be disability. We hope against it, but we feel like it's a regular part of what it means to be human. And we don't ascribe that to God. If something is evil, it's evil to suggest that God is its source. As one commentator put it, and I really like this quote, hell is the source of the trouble which God tolerates for the sake of our freedom. God tolerates evil. He doesn't create it. He tolerates it for the sake of our freedom, giving people uh, in his long suffering a chance to come to Christ and not be lost for eternity. We talk about this all the time. And so that's what this verse is about. It's not about God being so sovereign that he can do something evil and we think it's good. God is sovereign. He's so sovereign that he gave and has given mankind free will. We exercise it sinfully. Bad things happen. God's resolve was to come into our world as the God-man, adding humanity to his deity and pay the penalty for sin. Delivering Israel from Egypt is a major moment in that plan. Verse 12 now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Do we ever use Moses' excuse? Well, sure. We excuse ourselves for not being adequate to the task. We don't know enough. We're not holy enough. We don't have the time. We don't have the resources. Anytime we look at our own abilities, they seem disabilities that hinder our saying, here I am, send me. You know how something uh, happens in a meeting or in an appointment and you know you've been dismissed? It, it, it's over. God said, now therefore go. That's pretty final. When you're talking to God and he's in a bush that isn't consumed and he says, now therefore go, that's a moment. If Jesus calls you to a ministry or asks you to serve him in some way, small or great, now therefore go. He wouldn't commission you unless he had overcome all possible excuses. In our reflection and prayer at the end of the study, be brave and ask the Lord to show you any excuses you might be using that are keeping you from serving him. In Moses' case, it was a big ask. 
leave everything you've built for 40 years and go into full-time ministry. It could be that for you too. Probably it's something lesser but no less important. In the remaining verses, have you ever refused yourself from serving the Lord? Some dialogue, see if you recognize it. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Mr. McGee was the investigative reporter who was trying to expose David Banner as the Incredible Hulk in the original television series, and you wouldn't like him when he was angry. God's about to get angry with Moses, but we shouldn't think of him as hulking out. Verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. God, I don't want to go. Send anybody else but me. This is an abject refusal. God said, now, therefore, go. And Moses said, yeah, send anybody else. I'm not going. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God gets angry, but his anger is hard to get a handle on because it's never sinful. And the, the problem we have is so much of our anger is sinful. I mean, you, can, you almost can't imagine being angry without being sinful. There's no such thing as a righteous road rage, as far as I can tell, no matter how much you've been cut off. And so we like to think we have righteous indignation or righteous anger, but a lot of our anger is just sinful. We know intellectually that there is such a thing, but uh, we're dominated by our flesh. So here's an illustration that might help explain. It's not a great illustration, but it, it gets us more towards the heart of God. Let's say you're having a teachable moment with one of your young children. You probably had three, four million of those between the ages of two and 10. Uh, and then there was a respite there from 10 years, six months to 11 years, six months. And then the teenage years start uh, and stuff. I consider 12 a teenager in terms of disobedience. But anyway... Uh, so you're dialoguing, you're overcoming their excuses and their objections when suddenly they just get defiant and say no. They draw a line in the sand. They say, this is it. I'm done. Well, you go into a whole different mode. I would call it anger, not a violent anger, not a lashing out anger. Certainly you don't yell and cuss or do anything like that. This isn't, you know, we're not talking about. You are angry at their refusal because you know how wrong it is. You know how sinful it is. You know how discouraging it is. You know it's totally in the wrong direction that one day they will stand where you are and know that what they're doing is horrible. And so there's a, there's a sense that comes over you of, I have to deal with this and I have to make it right. And you struggle with them. And that's a little tiny, tiny bit of how I understand the anger of God towards Moses. It's like, Moses, you just don't get it. I'm giving you the desire of your heart. This is what you wanted, and it's what you still want. I'll give you all the power to serve me. This is going to be fantastic. You just can't afford to say no at this juncture, and so I have to work with you to get this ironed out. So verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. Look, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Moses had a big sister, Miriam, and an older brother, Aaron. Since this is an origins story, Moses includes the detail that Aaron was a Levite. That's going to be important later when God establishes the priesthood because only Levites can be priests. God sees several moves ahead by his foreknowledge and provides accordingly. 
Aaron is probably coming to tell Moses that the Pharaoh who wanted him dead was himself dead. Little did Aaron know that he too was going to be voluntold to serve God, but more so by Moses than by God. This is, this is an idea that God has to uh, utilize because Moses is being so disagreeable. So verse 15, now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. So Aaron obviously had no problem speaking Hebrew or Egyptian. He was still living by the Nile as a, uh, under subjection to the uh, Egyptians. He would be able to serve as a translator for Moses. Uh, you shall be to Aaron as God simply means that the words Moses spoke to Aaron would be considered the word of God. So God would speak to Moses. Moses would speak those same words to Aaron, and Aaron would be speaking, therefore, the word of God. On the one hand, having Aaron to talk through was a blessing. However, Aaron is going to pose problems for little brother. Most notably, when Moses goes to receive the law, you remember it was Aaron who made the golden calf, leading Israel into an orgy, thinking that Moses had somehow been killed on the mountain. And so what do you do when somebody is killed? You have an orgy around a golden calf. And so this was perfectly normal as far as Aaron was concerned. So not a good idea to trust in man. So at, at, on the surface, it seems like, okay, so this is how we're going to do it. This is great. We'll have an interpreter. But it's really God's permissive will, not his perfect will. And it didn't turn out as well as it could have for Moses. He says, you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. A case can be made that God would have been far more glorified by Moses' slow, heavy use of speech and then the miracles that he was able to perform. We think eloquence is important and necessary. We, we, wanna, we wouldn't think of sending somebody who, uh, to, you know, as an ambassador to a foreign country who didn't have some command of the language or uh, couldn't communicate. But we who read the New Testament, we know that God likes to use the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And I think it would have been a hoot, you know, for, for Moses to have to go in and speak kind of a halting Egyptian to Pharaoh. It would have been like something no one had ever done before him before. I mean, I'm sure that if you sent an embassy to Pharaoh, who was obviously the strongest individual in that part of the world and one of the key leaders in the world at that time... You, you wanted to make a good impression. You didn't want to get your head cut off. Uh, and, and so for Moses to come in, you know how Charlton Heston comes in, right, in the Ten Commandments? It's all flowing and stuff, and his hair's on fire. And I mean, it's just, <laughs> let my people go. All right. I, hey, Charlton Heston, my president. But uh, anyway, you've seen those bumper stickers, haven't you? Anyway. I don't know what I'm talking about now. But anyway, so Moses, can you imagine Moses coming in and saying, um, people, Israelites, Hebrews, slaves, let go. What is this madman babbling about? Let my, how do you say people? Let my people go. This would have been mind-blowing, nothing like that. Some guy with a shepherd's staff or rod speak babbling in part Hebrew and part Egyptian and part Midianite, whatever they spoke, it would have been fantastic. You'd never see this portrayed on, in, in any other uh, way. But I think God would have been honored by that. 
and glorified by that, seeing that it's his power and not the eloquence of man, not the words of Moses, not the words of Aaron. And so we need to keep all that stuff in mind. You'll take this rod and you'll do the signs. Pharaoh and the Hebrews would recognize the rod or the staff as the implement of a shepherd. So important here. We've talked about this before, but I love it. Moses thought that he was going to deliver Israel as a military leader 40 years earlier. And the Jews probably thought, hey, if we're going to be delivered from Egypt, we need a military leader. In the first century, when Jesus was here offering the kingdom, the Jews thought they needed a military savior. He was there as a spiritual savior. And so now for Moses, the same guy, to come back 40 years later with a shepherd's implement, the idea was, hey, this isn't going to be a military conquest. This is going to be a spiritual conquest. God is going to lead his flock like a shepherd away from the most powerful wolf on the face of the earth. And there's not a thing you can do about it. This is a mind-blowing spiritual encounter if you just let God do it the way he wants to do it, filled with symbolism and wonder and awe. Would a show of power help our witnessing? I'm always reminded that it didn't help Jesus. I'm not saying signs and wonders can't or don't still attend the preaching of the gospel, but we shouldn't count on them whether they occur or not. Jesus, one of the highlights of the signs and wonders, he raises Lazarus from the dead. The guy's been in the grave four days. Even his sister says he stinks by now. Jesus says, believe in me. Guy, he raises him from the dead. He hobbles out because he's all wrapped up. And, what? It's my Lazarus impression. And uh, what happens? The Jewish religious leaders get together and say, hey, did you see that resurrection? Yeah, we need to kill him. And we need to kill Jesus. We need to get this done as soon as possible before this idea gets legs. And, and the Gospel of John says that Jesus did so many signs and wonders that if they were all written down, the world couldn't contain the books. And yet, at the cross, only John as a disciple and a few women in the upper room, only 120 people, where were all these signs and wonders believers? They were nowhere to be found. And so, if God wants to give a sign or a wonder or a miracle, I'm all for it but it doesn't mean it's going to affect anybody for eternity. In fact, it's just as likely that they'll blow it off. There's plenty of miracles in the world. Creation itself is, is a sign. It's a miracle. And people say, oh, no, yeah, this wasn't created. It just all came together out of a primordial ooze. And people think that that's a valid thing. And so God you know, doesn't have to give us a sign. The sign he has given us is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Three days and three nights in the grave, and then he rose from the dead, and he's alive forevermore. It's the greatest sign in the history of the world. Now, I can't determine anyone else's refusals to serve. I can only look at my own life. I know there have been some, and I'm sure there will be others. I would suggest this as a point of uh, introspection. The Christian life, by definition, is a sacrificial life. Jesus left heaven, added humanity to his deity, died on the cross, and rose from the dead, there's a measure of suffering and sacrifice involved if we're going to be Christ-like. And so since that's true, we are to continuously offer ourselves as living sacrifices. If I'm not making sacrifices of my time and my finances and my availability specifically for the Lord and the sake of the gospel, then in those areas, I'm refusing to serve him. 
And so as we go into our time of reflection that we have every week, ask the Lord, am I sacrificing? Then listen for his answer. Make the necessary adjustments. Let's pray.